0: Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan.
1: Here we are, we're worrying about what's for lunch, we're fretting about the test that's coming up tomorrow at school, we wonder if we'll be able to get to work tomorrow if it snows. So much worry, so much time wasted, but the one who showers our earth with rain and snow, the one who places the star in the night skies is the same God who wraps mercy tight around you and everything. This same God feeds us with hope and so let us confess how our worries keep us from trusting this God and ask this God to restore us to new life. Let us pray together. Here in this familiar place, generous and merciful God, we gather together in longing for the inspiration of your presence, for the soothing touch of your forgiveness within our consciences, for the stirring vision of your will, even in this wounded world. We gather together in hope that in power of your word and the whispering of your beauty, the healing silence of our prayers and the sincerity of our community will awaken in us the image and likeness of your Son, Jesus. In these moments of courage and peace, lift us to any burdens of regret that hold us apart from the power of your reconciling love.
0: God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Enable us to respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the second year of King Darius, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Yet now, take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit abides among you. Do not fear. For thus, says the Lord of hosts, once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Thanks be to God. The second reading this morning comes from the 20th chapter of Luke's Gospel, the story of a contentious encounter between Jesus and some of his adversaries. Some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless. Then the second and the third married her. And so in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage indeed they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of god being children of the resurrection and the fact that the dead are raised moses himself showed in the story about the bush where he speaks of the lord as the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Now he is the God, not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. Then some of the scribes answered, saying, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him another question. The grass withers, the flower fades, But the word of our God endures forever." This morning, this story from Luke prompts me to say one brief thing by way of further introducing myself to you. I happen to be someone who really enjoys thinking about Scripture, pondering it and holding it up to the light, arguing with it, walking around and around it, knocking on all the doors and windows. Admittedly, a sermon tends to be a sort of one way street. But if anything I say while standing in this little wooden box ins- nudges you into conversation with Scripture or with each other or with me or, best of all, with God, I want you to know that I would welcome that whether we happen to agree or disagree. I love thinking about God but that doesn't make me an expert on God it makes me a pilgrim like you and I love thinking about Jesus but that doesn't make me an expert on Jesus it makes me a disciple like you I mention this because I may be about to start sounding as though I know anything at all about heaven. In spite of the fact that I have the Sadducees and their question right in front of me to remind me how very thin the ice is on that part of the skating pond. In first century Judaism, the Sadducees were a small sect of the temple elite, who based their rather exclusive way of keeping their tradition on a quite narrow reading of scripture. For them, the only authority was Torah, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If it wasn't in Torah, as far as they were concerned, it didn't matter. That may sound as if it covers the essentials, But, of course, that leaves out vast and precious parts of Scripture. The spiritual honesty of the Psalms. How could we live without that? And the ethical imperatives of the prophets. And all the lessons of the historical books. All of which are part of our canon. And all of which informed Jesus' own faith. Though the Sadducees didn't credit any of that at all. So when Luke tells us that the Sadducees are those who say that there is no resurrection, it's because there's nothing at all in Torah, in those first five books of Moses, about that rather vexed subject of what happens after death. There is, though, in Torah, an ancient provision for what happens if a man dies without leaving an heir on which to found the next generation for his family. The norm was, as you heard, that the man's next brother could become his automatic successor for purposes of continuing the family line and the family name. That's what the Sadducees are on about in their entrapping question. They say to Jesus, whose authority they don't credit at all, in this kingdom of heaven that you keep talking about, what happens to people who have followed the law of family succession that we have from Moses, whose authority they do credit? If they all live side by side in this resurrection of yours, says Jesus, they say to Jesus, who is who to whom? Let's be real. The Sadducees' question is ridiculous. One waggish preacher friend of mine calls it heaven's bride for seven brothers. (laughs) The question might have sounded funny even in the moment if it hadn't come with such a thick patina of snark. I think even Jesus must have barely concealed a sardonic chuckle or a roll of the eyes as he parried that question. You remember, he says, you remember what it says in that story about the bush, he says, meaning the burning bush, of course, Exodus 3, right at the heart of the Sadducees' beloved Torah. The burning bush is a classic moment of introduction of the sort where you explain who you are by saying who you know and who knows you. Jesus explains that in that story about the bush, you remember that story about the bush, God says, in effect, I know Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Know them because, says Jesus, they live still. They are alive with God and in God, as Moses will discover when he invokes them in the struggle that's just about to begin at that point. For the freedom of their descendants from Egyptian slavery, but you don't really need to worry about the Sadducees at all, you will be glad to hear. Their sect disappeared entirely not long after the time of Jesus, when the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and scattered all of its proud insiders. But I think their question has more shelf life than its quite absurd premise would suggest. If we just shift the parameters slightly, we could end up face to face with the question, how do the things that matter very much to us during our lives together here matter to God? And that's a question with a shelf life as long as the human moral imagination and as timely as one of the most poignant phrases that most of us ever speak in our lives, till death do us part. In his response to the Sadducees' question, Jesus makes a distinction between what he calls this age, the life we know here, the life of which we share a common experience, and that age, The age to come where the dead are like angels and are children of God being children of the resurrection. For a topic that's come to be so central in Christian reflection, it's interesting that Jesus didn't really have all that much to say that's descriptive of life in that age. He speaks of heaven as the place of God. And as a realm, or kingdom in the parlance of his culture, a realm where virtue reigns and where sorrow is banished. But Jesus doesn't give us many images to appease our curiosity. Especially in times of loss, we find it understandably comforting to picture a place where losses are reversed, where the golf course is green, the bay is blue, and the welcome party is always in full swing. I, for one, don't know enough about it to contest any of those images, but I also recognize the truth of the sobering observation of New Testament scholar Charles Kauser who writes that, We simply do not have the language or concepts to depict what life in the resurrection of the dead will be like. But it is not the case, Kauser says, that we can take what we like out of our current life, raise it to the nth power, and call it heaven. To the Sadducees, Jesus says, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. When people love during this earthly life, marriage is one particularly hopeful, if still always imperfect, form of life together, by which we make a mystical connection between souls into a visible social contract and organize ourselves around it. You can hear us reaching toward the mystical in the words, I do promise and covenant to be your loving and faithful companion in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. And maybe you can hear that mystical connection too in the words that the session and deacons heard downstairs this morning among those who, glory be, will be uniting their lives with ours as new members later in this service. Will you be a faithful member of this congregation giving of yourself in every way, and will you seek the fellowship of the church wherever you may be? But then, when the fork in the road comes between this age and the age to come, in the love with which God loves beyond earthly life, about as much as we can say is that whatever life together may look like then, All the social contracts will have fallen away, and the connections between souls will have become pure, realized hope, mystical to a point beyond imagination, beyond perfection, beyond visibility, and certainly in no further need of organization, even if there are a few Presbyterians in that place. (laughs) But it's actually at precisely this point that I think we can say that we do know something about heaven. Just one thing, really. But I think it's enough. More than enough. I think we know that death does not end love. Death ends many things. But it does not end love, which wells up even in the driest of deserts, whether as tears or as laughter or both. And love taps even the deepest loneliness on the shoulder and says, I am still here, strong as ever or stronger. And love changes over time, doesn't it? but only to prove that love's not time's fool, as Shakespeare wisely said. Love rides time. Love gives time meaning beyond plenty or want, beyond joy or sorrow, beyond sickness or health. Heaven is a name for the place where all the powers may have done their worst And when all of that is finished, what is left is still love, freed of all its earthly constraints, free to burnish whatever it touches, free to its fullest holiness, free to become part of God. It may be that heaven... Isn't about the things in this current life that we like, raised to the nth power. But surely heaven is about love we have known that death cannot and has not destroyed. And surely in the meantime, Jesus is calling us to organize our life together here and now around a mystical commitment that takes in not just our primary companion but all our relationships. The great poet of our era, Wendell Berry, has a poem called The Country of Marriage in which he speaks, I think, of more than just that one singular primary relationship. He writes, Sometimes our life reminds me of a forest in which there is a graceful clearing and in that opening a house, an orchard and garden, comfortable shades and flowers red and yellow in the sun, a pattern made in the light for the light to return to. The forest is mostly dark its ways to be made anew day after day, the dark richer than the light, and more blessed, provided we stay brave enough to keep on going in. I hear Jesus calling us in this age, To make our way into the always challenging dark of unfinished relationships. And to believe that our rising to his challenge to love one another as he loved us. To love every one of us respectfully, ethically, joyfully, generously. Will instill greater and greater richness to our life together provided we stay brave enough to keep on going in. So we begin new relationships, as we will hear again this morning in front of all your eyes. We betroth ourselves to one another, not just as marriage partners, but as journey companions, as fellow citizens, as one of Jesus' holiest words as neighbors. So we make churches. We welcome each other into covenants of grateful coexistence to ponder together the mystical connections that are woven into our living tissue as social creatures and to try to organize ourselves while we live together as best we can. My friend, the Reverend Tom R. writes this. We don't know what the holy commonwealth of God will be like. But in this age, some have walked through life being loving and faithful, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health. I wonder if that is not the closest we come to knowing what the new age is like. If we could be brave enough to offer one another, for instance, a kind of love that could ride time in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we shall live, brave enough to keep on going in. If we treated everyone with such love, well, We wouldn't call it marriage, but life would be so transformed, we might call it heaven.
3: God of life and life anew, we bring you our offerings, our symbols of faith and our hearts to you this day. We seek your renewing spirit that we can make new beginnings with openness and trust. Help us to be open to new ways of seeing new avenues of acting to a renewal of our relationships so that we can join you in making all things new so god take these gifts and use them may these gifts be the beginning of hope and beacons of life against beacons of light against darkness in this world in jesus name we pray amen Pray with me once again. Lord of all races and nations, we thank you for our country and its people, our blessings and our troubles. By your Holy Spirit lead us through this world with both humility and confidence. Though we are few, teach us to do justly, love mercy and walk humbly with you, our God move with your renewing spirit all that is in our hearts and minds. May they know not only the will to seek the common good, but also the wisdom to recognize what is truly the common good. Though we may fail, teach us to do justly, love mercy and walk humbly with our God. By your reconciling spirits, bridge the gap between city and country employed and unemployed wealthy and the bachelors indigenous people and more recent generations of I- immigrants the political right and the political left and between the powerful and weak though we are divided teach us to do justly love mercy and walk humbly with you our god heavenly one source of our salvation we pray for a world that needs to know your love We pray for those living through natural disaster, living with grief, living without family. We give thanks for those who have served our nation with honor, courage, and commitment. And we pray for those still serving. We pray for our neighbors whom we see and those whom we do not see. Loving God through Jesus Christ who strengthens us. We commit ourselves to making this place a place where grace, mercy, and peace are not in short supply. And now let us pray the way that Jesus has taught us to pray. Sing our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come,
0: thy will be done
3: on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debts. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom
0: and the power, and the glory ever. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another Sermon from First Press.